It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 30 minutes or so, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I'll be discussing two recent wonderful new movies, the first entitled Baby Teeth, a highly original, exceptionally moving comedy drama from Australia, and the second, The White Tiger, a darkly satirical comedy drama set in modern India. Both are available to view on Netflix, while Baby Teeth is available as well to borrow as a DVD from the library. Baby Teeth is a funny and deeply affecting movie about a gravely ill girl named Mila. Also her parents and the troubled and troubling young man named Moses that she has brought into their lives. Now, as plot premises go, that may not seem very original, except the level of artistry here in terms of the writing, the performances and direction, is out of all proportion to what we might have expected from such a small-scale movie. In fact, it made many critics' top ten lists last year, and also cleaned up at the Australian equivalent of the Academy Awards. Now, the tone of this film is often quite unusual, especially given its subject matter, a gravely ill teenage girl. Where we might have expected something overly mordant or sentimental, Instead, this movie is quite stylish, often surreal, and includes much humor, if sometimes dark. But still, there are many, many truly sublime moments, moments of great delicacy and feeling, which I don't hesitate to call tearfully poetic. And much of the success of this film is distinctly attributable to the film's 38-year-old Australian director, Shannon Murphy, who, in her talent, through her talent, brings a kind of solemnity to sequences that require it while releasing joy to the audience when you're, you know, when we're least expecting it. Murphy herself grew up in Hong Kong, the big city of Hong Kong, as well as in Africa, urban Africa, and has said that she was especially influenced by the colorful neon of the city of Hong Kong itself and the movies of its foremost auteur, Wong Kar Wai. Murphy had been mostly known in Australia as a theatre director in the region of Sydney before making Baby Teeth, her first movie, though she has also directed episodes of the TV series Killing Eve. So she's really making herself uh, known as a film and television director, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more from her. The movie Baby Teeth is itself based on a 2012 stage play, written by Rita Kalneas, who has also written the screenplay for this movie. And if I hadn't known that this was an adaptation of a play, I'm not sure I would have suspected it, because the movie is really so very colorful, dynamic, and highly cinematic. Yet, the emotions on display in this film are very, very real. Certainly that's my own apprehension of the film. I mean, on the technical level, one thing that Baby Keith does is make frequent use of handheld camera work in order to convey the tension inherent in many of the sequences. 
as well as in the unpredictable instability within the principal characters themselves. Another thing that definitely sets Baby Teeth apart from other more conventional films is the quality of the acting, especially in the wonderful, if heightened, performances by the four lead actors. Eliza Scanlon as the teenage girl Mila, Toby Wallace as her troubling, if charismatic, would-be boyfriend, uh, Moses, Ben Mendelsohn as Mila's father, and Essie Davis as Mila's mother. But another thing that advances the highly theatrical nature of this film is that it continually uses text to introduce each scene, which conveys both the episodic structure of the story as if we were reading it as chapters, you know, as if it were a book, you know, comprised of chapter headings. And the fact that these are but moments, however precious, from the entirety of the lives being portrayed here. Indeed, there are really a couple of moments in which the invisible wall between the audience and movie is broken, or nearly broken, as with a sick Mila alone and in deep introspection, and on at least one occasion staring into the camera, as if breaking that theatrical fourth wall between audience and performance. I mean, she's engaging with us directly. Usually in watching a film, of course, we're pretending kind of willfully that we're engaged with the reality of what's on screen and that there's no difference, no distinction. And that the film and we watching it are unaware in the moment of doing so. But instead, Baby Truth, uh, Baby Truth, Baby Tooth, <laughs> rather truthfully, I, I, might, uh, I might hasten to add, um, kind of foregrounds its own highly theatrical artificiality and roots as a stage play in such moments. Now, another thing that underscores the infectious, charismatic nature of this movie is its wonderful use of music. The young Mila is herself very influenced by music, both European classical music, she is training as a violinist, as well as music from around the world. And there's this character of uh, Gideon, who I think is from Eastern Europe or perhaps Israel, who is, I mean, it's not said, who is very much her teacher and someone who provides a kind of framework in which she can learn about and express herself outside the often stifling confines of her family life. Yet music is also the best, perhaps only way that Mila can communicate with her mother, which we see and hear during a violin and piano duet played so movingly by the two of them at Mila's birthday party towards the end of the film. Also, there is this night out sequence for Mila halfway through the movie with its attendant music, which I find beautifully expresses the excitement of discovery that, uh, that this young woman is feeling. Uh, you know, being fully released from her stifling world and health concerns, if only for a short time. It's that, it's that moment, or among a few moments that we have as young people, or had as young people in my case, of, you know, a kind of a newfound discovery of the mystery and magic of the world. I mean, I pretty much loved everything about this film, but one of my favorite scenes takes place during Mila's interaction with a performance artist during a party that night, that night of discovery, in which she and her quasi-problematic boyfriend have been invited 
And in this scene, we can see her opening up to the world, you know, the world beyond her family and school life, perhaps for the very first time, a turbulent time, of course, in a teenager's life. It's, it's a strangely beautiful and magical moment and well conveys, I think, her intense desire to experience life, as do all young people. And all the more intensely knowing how brief her time is. I mean, as with life itself, the passage of time is the essence of all movies. And it's something that is especially precious in this movie, and so profoundly and well conveyed as well. There are, truthfully, a handful of moments in this film that almost stopped my heart and left me close to tears, as in an interlude at dawn when Mila has gotten out of bed and gone outside. She's quite sick at this point, and where she listens to a birdsong symphony from the trees and then whispers in wonderment to herself, you birds are crazy. It's a quiet moment, a moment of such depth and richness and it conveys a kind of very subtle wonder and apprehension at both the mystery and beauty of the world, especially because it's shot in such a way as to be a little disorienting for the viewer, almost as if it's a moment of magic realism, certainly a, a moment of, that is highly poetic, if not entirely realistic, almost a little surreal, as we are now kind of outside the naturalism that makes up most of the film. There is indeed a lot of bird imagery in this movie. I mean, the vibrant colors that Miller wears, I think, associates her with this imagery and the fragility and vulnerability that birds may themselves represent to us. And certainly in the character of Miller, that sense of fragility and vulnerability are, are very much present. This is a deeply compassionate movie about its characters, all of its, all of its characters. Mila's imperfect mother, for example, and her father included. They're not perfect. They are an upper middle class family living in a beautiful glass enclosed house. And how does that aphorism go? You know, the one about people who live in glass houses, they shouldn't throw stones. I mean, there are no secrets or places to hide in their glass house metaphorically speaking. And that, I mean, this family, it, it turns out to be not so morally superior to the more obviously troubled young Moses character, who's little more than a drug-dependent of charismatic and handsome young street person when we meet him in the first scene of the film. The parents, now, understandably, they first object to the presence of Moses in their lives. But they soon learn there's nothing that they can really do about it, while continuing to acknowledge, um, as when the mother will say at one point in the movie with you know a kind of bemused resignation, this is the worst possible parenting I can imagine. But this is what Mila wants. She's nearing the end of her life. And as her father says to Moses himself, when inviting him to come live with the family, Mila, and I quote here, should have the world at her feet right now, end quote. And which of us as parents, which I am not, would do any different confronted with an identical situation? Now, of course, I won't spoil the ending, which is 
highly ambiguous and deeply moving in its coda. Indeed, I think it is one of the most, and I say this with no hyperbole involved at all, one of the most moving moments that I've ever experienced in a film. The film's director, Shannon Murphy, has said, in response to questions about the movie, that this is a story about how good it is to be alive. And boy, did I feel that. And how important it is to cherish the moments that you have with those that you love. And that really comes across by the end of this movie, and especially in its beautiful, sublime coda. That's the, that's the movie Baby Teeth, available both to view on Netflix and as a DVD to borrow from the library. The White Tiger is another new movie available to view on Netflix. It is an epic, darkly satirical film about a poor but cunningly ambitious young man from the lower caste who rises to become a flourishing entrepreneur in modern India. The White Tiger is based on the 2008 Booker Prize winning novel of the same title by Aravind Adiga, who in fact dedicated his novel to the future adaptations writer-director, Ramin Barani, which may be a first in movie history. I mean, it's very unusual, if not unheard of, that a filmmaker should adapt a book that has been dedicated to him. I've never heard of that before. It turns out the two men have been close friends since they were undergraduates at Columbia University in New York City in the 1990s, and that these two men have been close collaborators ever since, with each advising the other on his work at the gestation stage. The White Tiger is no different, with the film's director, Barani, having, having seen drafts of the book as early as 2004. But only in recent years did the two think that financing, in this case from Netflix, might be available for a work that is sometimes a little bit subversive, to say the least. One thing that distinguishes the book from this movie is that the book was written in a kind of epistolary form. That is, in the first person, but in the form of emails written by the character of Balram. And these, these emails are, are often both scathingly sarcastic and funny about the socioeconomic system in modern India. And by extension, in much of the rest of the world as well. Now, of course, in North America, we don't have a caste system, but we do have a not unrelated class system. And certainly, metaphorically, I think many viewers will be able to understand the film in relation to that. Now, the director, Barani, in adapting the book, has had to ditch the epistolary aspect, of course, while incorporating much voiceover narration in order to retain the first-person perspective and dark tone of the book. Another thing different from the book is that the film is, while mostly in English, about a quarter of the film is in Hindi, though subtitled in English for the 
large number of us, of course, who do not speak or read Hindi, whereas the book itself was written entirely in English. And it's really from an outsider's perspective, as I will discuss. The movie itself is as well from an outsider's perspective. It has been adapted by uh, a a Persian-American filmmaker, somebody who has never made a movie outside of the United States before making this film, The White Tiger. And that filmmaker, Raman Barani, he is very interesting and certainly among the most important living filmmakers in the United States today, where he was born in 1975 to Persian-American parents. His father was from a literally dirt-poor village in Iran, much like the dirt-poor village depicted at the beginning of this film, which is set in India, of course, so it's not an equivalent situation by any means. Barani's earliest films, um, Man Pushcart from 2005, Chop Shop from 2007, and Goodbye Solo from 2009, all chart the contemporary immigrant experience in the United States, and whose main characters are all poor and living on the margins of society. These films also all firmly are all firmly set in the social realist tradition, which largely uses non-professional actors, found environments, some improvisation, a documentary-like realism, and the avoidance of showy theatricality, that kind of showy theatricality that we, that we um, see in Baby Teeth, for example. Now, while not having gone completely Hollywood with this movie, The White Tiger, or with his more recent films, 99 Homes and At Any Price, Ramin Barani has strayed into much more conventional mainstream forms of filmmaking with this film, The White Tiger, uh, which is much more theatrical, much more close in appearance to a film like Baby Teeth than it is to those earlier films made in the 2000s. Um, but its its overarching theme remains the same, a concern with the lives of the economically poor and socially marginalized. And that is what is both admirable and unusual about this film that has proved to be a, a pretty big hit for Netflix. I mean, it's been popular all over the world, especially in India and in the Indian diaspora. But as I said, um, this film is instantly understandable to modern audiences around the world. It's dealing with very modern class concerns. Um, and, you know, it, it has an upward mobility plot, which I think we can all identify um, at the center of the story. Um, the film also secured Barani an Oscar nomination this year for Best Adapted Screenplay. So um, this is um, a film that has been critically acclaimed and which has received much notice everywhere. But one thing that is really quite unusual about this film is that it is structured around um, the character of Balram, a whip-smart young man from the lower caste in India who has cunningly hitched his wagon as a servant to a despicable but wealthy family. And it's very unusual for movies, especially Hollywood movies, um, to um, 
have such a character <laughs> as the centerpiece. Now, of course, this isn't, strictly speaking, a Hollywood film, but it is very much a film made with American money and from an American's perspective. So, it, although set in India, it is not exactly an Indian film either. It's really much kind of, kind of befitting a film about a, an outsider. It's very much uh, a film from an outsider's perspective. And that's another reason why I think audiences uh, universally, universally can appreciate this film. It also helps, I think, that the pacing is quite brisk. I mean, everything happens really quickly. It's a, it's a two-hour and five-minute film, but it really has a kind of epic feel to it. I mean, we're really getting a glimpse of the modern world in its entirety through the story of this, uh, this uh, simple, <laughs> conniving character um, called Balram. While still leaving much room for a fascinating character development and a fleshing out of the rigid social order on display in this world. I also like a lot of the same colorful theatricality that we find in Baby Tooth. This is a really, really energetically and beautifully filmed um, movie. And, and it, it has the same kind of great dramatic effect, I think, that Baby Tooth has. It's a very emotional film, and we really come to identify closely, I think, with, uh, with the character um, at the center of this film. It, is, it, it really has the same kind of emotional pull that a movie like Baby Tooth has, and another reason why I think everyone will love it. There are still some of the same techniques, the same social realist techniques uh, on display in this movie that uh, we may associate with Barani's earliest films. For example, there is this busy street scene, I mean, incredibly <laughs> crowded, you know, urban street scene in I India, uh, where Balram is kind of at loose ends at one point, and where his character is, you know, the situation has been set up by the director so that where he, I mean, even the director himself was not sure what was going to happen. It was meant to be in a kind of an improvisatory moment, you know, to convey a greater degree of realism and allowing the actors involved kind of the utmost leeway to respond to the, you know, the feeling of the moment. And that really comes through, both in this scene and in much of the rest of the film, in order to convey, despite the colorful theatricality on display, this greater enhanced feeling that we can really respond to in believing that, you know, the emotions and everything that is happening here is really true. And it's, you know, not just another movie. And that's entirely attributable to the brilliance of the director and his performers. The character of Balram is familiar to viewers from the social realist world of these documentary-like earlier films. But in The White Tiger, it is almost as if he has wandered unexpectedly into a much more theatrical movie, a movie perhaps more familiar to us as viewers in appearance from Hollywood, or Bollywood itself for that matter, except in Hollywood at least, we almost never see such characters at the center of a film. And that's why he say, and that's why I say it's almost as if he has wandered in to this movie from a very different kind of film. Instead, a character like Balram is perhaps more familiar to us from the world of literature 
rather than that of the movies, which require a great deal of financing to get made. And where such a project might at first glance appear not entirely feasible from a commercial perspective. Barani himself has said that he doubts this film could have been made in the 2000s, and that only now, now that the world has caught up with the novel, politically, I guess he means, can the movie, can the book be made into a movie. And the reason for that is ultimately The White Tiger is not a conventional movie at all, but rather a deeply subversive one. And I'm thinking here especially of the ending, which I won't spoil, but which is fairly troubling and something none of us who are not familiar with the novel, at least, might have expected. I mean, that scene, the ending of the movie, is present near the end of the novel, but what Barani has done is reversed some sequences for a dramatic effect, whereas the book ends with Bahram's unapologetic confession regarding events that, as I said, I won't spoil, which he makes alone, and that is computer. The bulk of the film, the bulk of the film, excuse me, is concerned with Bahram's status as a servant to this powerful family, especially in relation to the family's weak-willed, if high-minded younger son, Ashok, who has been educated in the United States, and with Ashok's vivacious, untraditional wife, Pinky. Now, of course, we are trained by a history of watching movies to identify emotionally with the central character. In fact, the more effective a conventional film is, the more likely we are to identify emotionally with that central character. Especially when the character is a victim of a kind, or perhaps underprivileged in some way, or especially if he or she is an underdog. And that is certainly the case here with the character of Balaram, with his internalized sense of servitude, and the frequent ill-treatment and humiliation that results from it. I mean, he has literally been brought up to be a servant and has never known anything else except this brief moment in his childhood when he exhibited great promise as a school child before being withdrawn from school by his grandmother and forced to work in a tea shop. But only late in the film do we find our instinctive sympathy with this underdog character severely tested by a subsequent event. The great director Alfred Hitchcock once said that if an audience can be made to identify with a character, he or any director can have that character do just about anything. And I think that's true and almost never more so than in this movie, The White Tiger, which bears an interesting comparison with another very contemporary film, one that I have talked about here on Lockdown Viewing. And that is with a movie, a South Korean drama, Burning, that is available to view on the Library Supla streaming service and also on Netflix. Insofar as both movies, the movie Burning and the movie The White Tiger, have at their center a kind of class-based rage, which features two young male characters from the extremes of the socio-economic strata in their two otherwise very different countries. And that rage takes a most surprising, if rather troubling, turn in the course of events in both films. 
In a nearly explicit reference to the movie Slumdog Millionaire, the character of Balram muses late into the film The White Tiger that men of his caste can forget about escape from the metaphorical chicken coop by winning a game show, which is, of course, what happens in, if somewhat fancifully, Slumdog Millionaire, that such a thing is not possible in this movie, The White Tiger. And what I think the movie is telling us here is that the social system of Balram's world is so unjust, so rigid, and inherently unequal that you pretty much have to resort to extreme measures in order to succeed in it. Now, in the logic of Balram, which is not necessarily the logic of the movie, it takes, and I quote the character here, no normal human being, a freak, a pervert of nature, to break free. And that is why I think the film is called The White Tiger. This mythical, metaphorical creature born once in a generation that has the fortitude to both survive and prosper. Balram is the white tiger. As he was called as a child by a school official who had witnessed an early promise in him, a promise that was taken away by his grandmother, but which he, as still a young man, is resolutely intent on fulfilling. Another thing that makes this movie a little subversive, however conventional at first glance, is its portrayal of the fi family dynamic, whether Balram's own or that of the family that he works for. In both cases, the family is a kind of trap of sorts, both inherently repressive and deeply exploitative. And I think it's significant that as the film concludes, we see no effort on Balram's part to start his own family, nor has there been, very unusually in a commercial movie, any love interest at all throughout the course of the film. He remains very much an isolated character, however his fortunes may change by the end of the film. The actor Ardash Gaurav, who plays the central character of Balram, was not very well known, either internationally or in India itself, before making this film. Unlike some of the other actors present in the film, who in many cases are, are superstars in their home country and in the Indian di diaspora around the world. But the actor Ardash Gaurav was chosen by the director Balrani explicitly because he was not well known to audiences and because he had something of the underdog about him. Unlike, for example, the superstar actress Priyanka Chopra, who plays the young American-raised wife of the wealthy Ashok character. Now, in a typical Chopra film, she might well be portraying the central character, but such was her love for this book that also as executive producer, she was willing to take a secondary part in order to help get this movie financing in order to have it made. Balrani must have felt that the actor Ardash Gaurav would instinctively project a kind of sympathetic countenance that we in the audience would be drawn to and perhaps identify with. And boy, was he right. In fact, 
The director was well awarded with this performance by the actor Ardash Garav that uh, um, Garav's performance was in fact nominated at the BAFTAs this year for the Best Actor Prize. And quite deservedly so. That's the movie The White Tiger, available to view on Netflix. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed these recommendations and that you will join me next week at this time for more movie talk. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Cote St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cotesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.